Jesus Begins Public Ministry, Part 18 A Glance at the Disciples Going to the Baptism I saw the disciples whom Jesus had dispatched with messages arrive in Capernaum. They were about five of the best known. They had an interview with Mary, and then two of them went to Bethsaida for Peter and Andrew, James the Less, Simon, Thaddeus, John, and James the Greater were present. The disciples spoke of the mildness, meekness, and wisdom of Jesus, while the followers of John the Baptist proclaimed with enthusiasm the austere life of their master, and declared that they had never before heard such an interpreter of the law and the prophets. Even John spoke enthusiastically of the Baptist, although he already knew Jesus. His parents had once lived only a couple of hours from Nazareth, and Jesus loved him even as a child. The disciples celebrated the Sabbath here. The next day, I saw the nine disciples, along with those named above on the road to Tiberias, whence they were to go to John, passing near Ephron, and then through the desert toward Jericho. Peter and Andrew particularly distinguished themselves by the zeal with which they spoke of the Baptist. He was, they said, of a noble priestly race. He had been educated by the Essenians in the wilderness. He would suffer no irregularity around him. He was as rigorous as he was wise. Then Jesus' disciples put forward the mildness and wisdom of their master, to which the others retorted that many disorders arose from such condescension, and they cited instances in proof of what they said. Jesus' disciples replied that their master, too, had been educated by the Essenians, and that, moreover, he had but lately returned from traveling. But John entered not into this discussion. I did not hear him saying anything more in that strain. They started together for the place of baptism, but after a few hours took different directions. As I listened to their conversation, I thought, men were then as they now are. Part 19. Jesus in Gophna. Gur, where Jesus prayed alone in the inn, lay not very far from a city, Megiddo, and a field of the same name. I have clearly seen that, toward the end of the world, there will be fought in that field a battle with Antichrist. Jesus arose with the dawn, rolled up his couch, laid a coin on it, girded himself, and went forth. His way led him around many towns and villages, but he met no one, put up at no inn. He passed Mount Gerizim, near Samaria, which lay to the left, as he journeyed southward. Occasionally he ate a few berries and some other fruit, and in the hollow of his hand, or with a concave leaf, scooped up some water to quench his thirst. Toward evening, Jesus entered Gophna, a city on Mount Ephraim. It was built upon very jagged foundations, some high, some low, numerous gardens and pleasure grounds scattered between the houses. Some relatives of Joachim dwelt there, but they had not maintained intimate communications with the Holy Family. Jesus put up at an inn where they washed his feet and gave him some little refreshment. But soon there came to the inn some of his relatives accompanied by 
a couple of Pharisees of the better sort, and escorted him to their own home, one of the handsomest houses in the city. The city itself was of some importance, and possessed at this time jurisdiction over a portion of the country around. Jesus' relative was an official and was much employed in writing. I think the city belonged to Samaria. Jesus was received with respect. There were several guests at his relative's house and all, standing or walking, took refreshments in a pleasure garden. Jesus slept here overnight. It was a day's journey from Gophna to Jerusalem. There was a little river in this region. During the loss of the boy Jesus in the temple, the Holy Family went to Gophna in search of him. For when they missed him at Machmas, they thought he might perhaps have gone to his relatives there. Mary feared that he had fallen into the little river. Jesus, having gone to the synagogue, asked for the writings of one of the prophets, and taught of baptism and the Messiah. He proved to his hearers from the prophets that the time must have arrived for his presence. He cited events which were to precede his coming, and what had actually been accomplished, alluding especially to one that had happened three years before. I do not now remember whether that particular event was a war, or whether it was that the scepter had passed from Judah. And so he went on enumerating proofs of accomplished signs which were to precede the coming of the Messiah. He mentioned also the multiplication of sects and the irreligious nature of so many of their ceremonies. He told them that the Messiah would be in their midst, and they would not know him. He alluded and words something like the following, to the connection existing between himself and John. There will be one who will point him out, the Messiah, but ye will not acknowledge him. Ye wish to see a conqueror, an illustrious personage, a man surrounded by magnificence and eminently learned companions. You will not recognize as the Messiah one that comes among you destitute of wealth and authority, unattended by the pomp of worldly splendor and magnificence, one whose companions are unlettered peasants and laborers, whose followers are made up of beggars, cripples, lepers, and sinners. In this way, Jesus spoke at length, interpreting the prophecies and putting forth clearly the connection between himself and John. Still, he never once said, but spoke of himself in the third person. His instruction occupied the greater part of the day. His relatives concluded that he must be an envoy, a forerunner of the expected Messiah. On his return to their house, they referred to a book in his presence, where they had recorded all that had happened in the temple to Jesus, the son of Mary, in his twelfth year. They were struck by the similarity between what he had then said and his teaching of today, and on perusal of that record, they were still more astonished. The father of the house was an aged widower. His two daughters, both widows, lived with him. I heard the two daughters talking together of the marriage of Joseph and Mary in Jerusalem, at which they had been present. They recalled the magnificence of that wedding, how well off Anne had been, but how changed the circumstances of the family had become. They spoke just as people of the world are accustomed to do, the vein of blame and reproach running through their words, as if they of whom they were speaking had greatly degenerated. While thus conversing and womanlike, recounting the particulars of the wedding and Mary's bridal dress, 
I saw a circumstantial vision of the whole ceremony, and especially of the Blessed Virgin's ornaments. Meanwhile, the men were hunting up what had been written years before about Jesus and his teaching as a boy in the temple. The parents of Jesus had anxiously sought him there. It was thus that the news of where and how he was found had reached them. The affair had attracted much attention, especially as he was a relative of theirs. While his relatives were still expressing surprise at the connection between his former and his present teaching, by which they were even more prejudiced in his favor, Jesus informed them that he must take leave and, in spite of their remonstrances, set out accompanied by several of the men. They had to cross a little river over a bridge of masonry on which trees were going. They journeyed some hours to a plain covered with meadows. It was here the patriarch Joseph was when Jacob sent him to his brethren in Sichem. The regions from which Jesus had lately come had also been much frequented by Jacob. Late in the evening, Jesus entered a shepherd village this side of a small river, and his companions left him. The village lay on both sides of the river, the part on the opposite bank being the larger. The synagogue was on this side. The Lord went on to an inn, where there were assembled two sets of candidates for baptism. They were on their way through the desert to the appointed place. They had spread the news here of Jesus' coming. He conversed with them that evening, and they departed next morning. The servants washed the Lord's feet. He partook of a light repast, and then retired for prayer and rest. Part 20. Jesus Condemns Herod's Adultery. The Journey of the Holy Women. Next morning, Jesus went to the school where many were assembled. He spoke, as usual, of the baptism and of the nearness of the Messiah, whom they would not acknowledge. He reproached them for their obstinate adherence to old, meaningless customs, at which point these people had a special failing. They were, on the whole, tolerably simple-minded, and received his remonstrances well. Jesus requested the high priest of the synagogue to conduct him to the sick. He visited about ten, but cured none. For in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, he had told Iliad and his five disciples that he would perform no more cures until he had been to the baptism. The sick in this place were mostly dropsical, gouty, and infirm women. Jesus exhorted them and told them separately what religious acts they should perform, according to their infirmities, were a part punishment of sin. Some he ordered to purify themselves and go to the baptism. There was a meal prepared for him at the inn, at which many men of the place were present. Before the hour for it, these men spoke of Herod, of his unlawful connection with his brother's wife, blaming him severely and inquiring into Jesus' opinion on the point in question. Jesus warmly censured Herod's conduct and denounced the sin of adultery, but he told them likewise that if they judged others, they would themselves be judged. Now there were in this place many sinners. Jesus spoke with them privately and earnestly reproved them for living in adultery. He told many all their secret sins. Trembling with fear, they promised to do penance. Jesus went from here to Bithynia, a distance of perhaps six miles, and again entered a mountainous region. It was the winter season, foggy and cloudy by day, and sometimes white frost by night. 
Jesus enveloped his head in a scarf and journeyed straight on toward the east. I saw Mary and four holy women leaving the house and wending their way through a field near Tiberias. They had with them two servants from the fishery. One went on ahead, the other followed, both laden with baggage which they carried on a pole across the shoulder, a pack in front and another behind. The four women were Johanna Chusa, Mary Cleophas, Mary Salome, and one of the three widows. They, too, were going to Bithynia by the usual route which ran by Sichem to the right. When Jesus passed it, it was on his left. The holy women walked generally in a single file, a couple of steps apart. They went in this way probably because most of the roads, excepting the broad highways, were narrow, intended for foot passengers, and led through the mountains. They walked quickly with a firm step, not swaying from side to side, as the country people do here. Very probably this is because, from early youth, the inhabitants of that country are accustomed to making long journeys on foot. They had their gowns tucked up to about the middle of the calf, their lower limbs bandaged tightly down to the ankle, and bound to the soles of their feet were thick padded sandals. Over the head was a veil, ends of which were fastened into the scarf wound around the neck. The scarf was crossed on the breast, thence carried behind and caught in the girdle. Sometimes the wearers ran their hands into its folds, and there let them rest. The man, going on before the travelers, prepared the way for them. He opened the hedges, removed stones from the path, laid bridges, gave orders at the inns, and in fine, saw to everything. The one who followed put everything again into its first order.